welcome to this week's episode of The Horse Race, your weekly look at the top elections and campaigns in Massachusetts. I'm Lauren Dzinski, author of Politico's Massachusetts Playbook. And I'm Steve Cazella, president of the MassInc Polling Group. This week, we'll be t- taking a deeper look at some of the political ads that have already started for 2018. A new poll showing Charlie Baker still walking on water and Elizabeth Warren still holding strong. And listing our must-watch races for Election Day, which is next Tuesday. And also, be sure to save the date for November 28th for the first-ever Horse Race Live special event at Ned Devines with yours truly, Steve, and a couple special guests to get you all in the hashtag MapAli campaign season during the holidays. The spirit everybody wants to be in. Listen, it is so valuable and so important, and we're not doing it too early. <laughs> Uh, We'll keep you posted about information for tickets and timing, and we look forward to seeing you all there. We do. Um, Election Day 2018 is still a year away, but the ads have already started. Uh, So just in the last few weeks, we've seen ads from GOP Senate candidates Beth Lindstrom and John Kingston, um, also Democratic candidate for the 3rd Congressional District Dan Coe has, has released an ad. And there have been a couple recently run against Senator Elizabeth Warren on the radio that are being funded by outside money, which we'll talk talk about a little bit later in the show. Here to help us make sense of this and to break it all down is Catherine Burton. Catherine was the campaign manager for Steve Grossman's 2010 Treasurer's Campaign and served as his chief of staff during his tenure in office. She advises candidates, elected officials, and is currently chairing Stephen Pasacantilli's District 1 City Council campaign. Catherine, welcome. And did I say his name correctly? You did, in fact, say his name correctly. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's a joy to come back to the Statehouse and uh, an honor to sit here with you guys. Fantastic. So let's first take a listen uh, to Dan Coe's ad, which dropped last week. A great man said, Ask not what your country can do for you. Well, I'm from this district and I'm asking, what can we do? How do we make our community better, our country better? just like the countless who have come before us. It's our turn to do the work. My great-grandparents came to Lawrence a century ago with nothing, pursued the American dream, did the work. In many countries... So uh, these ads, uh, full disclaimer to all of the listeners as well, these are these are TV ads. There's there's video uh, that also accompanies with it. This is obviously just the audio clip. But, you know, Catherine, what, what's your takeaway from the first time that, that you saw this ad and kind of subsequently? So I totally understand the metaphor um, of the running concept and appreciate it. Um, But I think this did exactly what Dan Coe needed to do, which is get the insiders talking, um, scare off some opponents. He's raised over $800,000. And so I think overall this was really positive. At last check, I think they had over 100,000 views, which is pretty impressive um and i think that you'll see that um while it's not a traditional political ad um it did exactly what it needed to do so he was he was successful which was what in this case i think in this case he needed to introduce himself to voters um one of his biggest criticisms uh is that he's not from the district and he needed to start he needs to start now um pounding that literally literally and figuratively in this case, um, pounding that into the ground. And so he did that with that montage in the middle, which showed his deep family connections. So he's going to, I suspect, as the campaign continues, what he'll do is push more down on that message that he's from the district, he's connected to the district, and his family has deep roots there. 
I want to ask a bit about the strategy because this is it's still just over a year until election day, and this the ad was you know a couple of weeks ago. So, um, it, what's the purpose of running an ad like this at this this very early date? Who's being targeted? What's the message that he's trying to send? Not just in the ad, but by the very act of releasing the ad. I think he's he's making a splash. He's he's getting us people like us talking about it. Um, he's getting. Uh, other candidates who are still looking at this race talking about it. Um, and so that is, that's where he is. And he's introducing himself to the you know, people who maybe didn't see him growing up. Um, he's very successful. He has you know, served as chief of staff to the, uh, the mayor um, of Boston, Mayor Walsh. And now he needs to come back and show people that he's willing to do the hard work. And through the analogy of the running I think he's, you know, that's where he's going. And I think um, his advisor, Doug Rubin, loves television. So that's definitely where uh, they're aiming. And I suspect the majority of the money that they raise will be spent on TV. With an ad like this, it's, you know, really highly produced. There's clearly a lot of different camera angles. I think there's probably drone footage coming in at some point, too. Uh, production value and, you know, production quality, is, is that significant, especially financially for a campaign? Absolutely. Um, everything from the creative, the production, the cost to actually air, um, it's so expensive. So I think the fact that it was so well done and that the production quality was so high, he has set the standard. And by setting the standard, everybody else is going to have to meet it or beat it. With this ad, I don't know if they're going to beat it per se. Um, so I think the other candidates are going to have to figure out different ways to get voters uh, to pay attention to them. Wow. Yeah. You mentioned uh, you mentioned about uh, the the amount of the budget that's spent on TV, but this this particular ad so far is only running on the internet. Um, do you think it's indicative of the kind of messages that he'll set, that he'll put on TV? And does the fact that he's hired Doug Rubin suggest that he's going to be sort of conventional and spend a lot of money on TV? Or alternatively, you know, you hear a lot these days about the impact that social media had in the 2016 election. Will there be a greater focus on social media with some of the um, some of the spending that we'll see in the race? I think you're going to see money spent everywhere, every way. Um, and it's it's going to be significant dollars, particularly in this congressional race. Um, I think I, I know you guys are going to talk about radio ads later. I never underestimate radio. People are stuck in their cars for a long period of time. Um, so I think that's often a medium that a lot of candidates don't touch on. Uh, but going back to your question around social media, we're on social media all the time, whether it be Instagram, um, Facebook. I learned recently that even Facebook ads, the reason they're all, you know, they have the, the type on the bottom is because most of them are people are watching them at work. And you don't want to turn. Yeah, you can't have sound on. You when can't you're have sound on. <laughs> so I was like, wow. So there's all these different mediums. And I think a, a successful candidate is going to have to embrace every single one of them. Absolutely. Let's move on to uh, Beth Lindstrom and the uh, U.S. Senate uh, campaign. Winning stardom among the left wing is not the same as winning the confidence of the working people of this commonwealth. Lecturing, raging, and grandstanding can work up your followers on Twitter, but that is not the same as serving your constituents. And a lot of us here in Massachusetts have noticed the difference. I will offer something new because Senator Warren's routine is getting old. It's getting worse and it's getting us nowhere. And independent. 
So Beth Lindstrom immediately goes after Senator Warren here, literally using her name, which I think was pretty surprising to me. Catherine, what's your takeaway here? Yeah, not only did she use her name, um, but then she also uses a clip of the incredibly popular senator. Um, People will say wagging her finger, which is what the Republicans really want to talk about is how Senator Warren is a lecturer, um, not only traditionally in the fact that she was a professor, but now she lectures everybody. And that's where the Republicans really start to uh, pound on uh, on our senator. So she not only, again, says her name, but uses the clip. And her tagline is, if you want a new tone, then we need a new senator. So she's she's aiming directly at her um, no holds barred. And I think that's what she has to do in order to gain um, some voters, but also to, again, have us talk about it. So that's what she had to do. And she came out of the gate doing it. Yeah, she says lecturing, raging, grandstanding, you know, all these very sort of very strong words. Same question, though, that we asked about the Dan Coe ad. Who is this ad trying to reach and does it does it do it effectively? So I think for for Beth, um, there are actually two two videos, a shorter, more concise of her kickoff and then a longer ad where it's very traditional um, and traditional in the sense that she's sitting around the table with her sons and she starts off by saying, I'm not a politician, I'm a mother. She has her husband. They're having pancakes. Who doesn't love pancakes? It's so quaint. It's, uh, the, the fruit is cut perfectly, <laughs> and she's in front of a window. It's like a Norman Rockwell painting. It's, it's, it's exactly that. Um, and I think her goal in that is making people try to feel comfortable, giving that uh, feeling that she's a mother caring for her three children, And she needs to introduce herself to voters who don't know her history of public service um, because Mitt Romney days for a lot of particularly millennial voters mean nothing. So I think she's doing that by talking about her experience under Governor Romney as the head of the state lottery um, and letting people know that's her resume. Absolutely. Let's move on to John Kingston, the another uh, GOP challenger in in the Senate race. Now, this ad is very unusual in the sense that it's incredibly long. Yeah, it's, it's like over six, six minutes. minutes, and he doesn't say a single word in it. So let's uh, let's let's listen to a little bit and then talk about it. I think that John um, is someone who can work across party lines. He's always been a person of action who can get things done. He will bring a level of civility to Washington um, and restore something that I feel is lost, and that is both parties are there to serve the people. He's always trying to get people together to... So, Catherine, again, what, what what's your takeaway here? So this, this ad, not only was it long, I, I found it intriguing. I, I It made me want to figure out more of his story Um, and he never spoke to camera as you stated Um, so I liked it I thought it grounded and connected him as a person it definitely showed his quirkiness um, and it laid out kind of his unique story He talks about joining the traditional African-American fraternity how he worked his way up achieved success And his validators were fascinating. They included an African-American pastor, a fire lieutenant, a teacher. Um, In it, there was a kind of undertone of faith, um, which wasn't in your face. So it made me want to learn more about him. I actually discovered um, that he 
he um, is an executive producer of MIT, the documentary. Oh, really? Yes. And so I think that gives him a perspective of telling a story, which I think we lose in today's ads where they're just trying to jam a lot in your face. Um, so I think that's why Dan Coe's ad and um, John Kingston's ad probably are making people talk a little bit more because it's, they're different. They feel different. They, they're not your traditional ad, um, which Beth is doing, but that doesn't make Beth's ad bad per se. It's just, I think, what she had to do. I would also say that, you know, the Kingston ad, the production value, like the co-ad, is is very high. And Kingston, you know, self-funded $3 million of $3.2 million in his campaign account. Dan Coe has a bunch of money. Uh, Beth Lindstrom has, has less money than that. Is, is this where we're seeing that, that financial difference? Um, I'm to some degree, of course, um, but it's also who's advising you. It's about the message. Um, for me, it's I didn't know how he got so wealthy, so I had to go look it up. Um, so it again, it made me a little bit more engaged because I just knew nothing about him. And and his story is is an interesting one. It's a fascinating one. And maybe he felt that six minute intro was the splash he needed. And then we'll start seeing shorter ads on policies and issues that he really cares about. And again, I think it was just quirky in that he's quirky. So I, I think that was engaging on, on multiple levels. Yeah, so, so mission accomplished, really, in that sense. I think mission accomplished for all three. Um, certainly no one had any missteps. Uh, everyone knew what they were doing. And I think in the end, uh, we're just going to get to a point where we start seeing other candidates come in, more ads and a lot of money spent. Let's transition quickly to uh, an instance where outside money is being spent. Uh, we are seeing uh, an example of the Mercers uh, paying for an advertisement uh, to specifically criticize, or multiple advertisements. Uh, these are on the radio uh, to go against Senator Elizabeth Warren. Especially here in Massachusetts, we have some of the highest student debt in the country, an average of more than $30,000 per student. But that didn't stop Warren from getting rich as a Harvard professor. She was paid a salary of nearly $350,000 for teaching a few hours of classes each week. The real irony? While Warren was raking in hundreds of thousands each year, many of her students were taking on massive debt. Catherine, what do you hear when you hear this ad? I think it's going to be a major element in the overall goal to diminish and demean the senator and again going back to the Beth Lindstrom ad and even John Kingston who um, in his on his website talks specifically about um, Senator Elizabeth Warren I think it's outside money coming in to supplement a message that direct candidates aren't going to or say and it's safe um, so they can the outside money is where that they can say the things that no one else wants to say and and take cover, um, but again, it's more of the critiquing of the you know rich Harvard professor off the backs of student debts, and it, it was a it was a stretch, um, but I think when you're tapping into that angry voter, uh, that message obviously I mean they've poll tested I'm sure something something works for a reason. Do you see this as like an amplification of this kind of narrative as a whole, right? Like like you were saying earlier, where a candidate, especially someone that's kind of running up more of the middle of the Republican aisle, um, 
and then you have this outside money kind of going more negative it allows the the candidate themselves to kind of keep their hands clean a little bit absolutely that's that's your if you know in the middle of a campaign you're praying that um an outside party will will play that role because you need it um especially against someone as popular senator warren who has a boatload of money um her fundraising continues to surpass anyone's imagination so that's exactly what they need to do and so the mercer money i think is going to we'll see if it has an impact um but that's its that's its role is it targeted at 2018 or is it trying to weaken her before a potential 2020 presidential run I think it's all of the above. I think um, depending on what there's so many rumors as to who's going to run in 2020, but I think the goal is to um, just, you know, it's like the the paper cut analogy, right? You start um, cutting, cutting, um, and you hope that eventually they bleed. Um, and in this case, I don't think it's, it's effective, um, but again, they're tapping into a very specific targeted voter who, you know, is angry and um and we'll see if it works excellent uh well Catherine, thank you so much for your insights and your thoughts uh this is this has been a fantastic conversation i've learned a lot thank you i really appreciate it uh thank you for doing this and uh hopefully if i haven't completely screwed up you'll have me up in in again (laughs) (laughs) down on it (laughs) you did a fantastic job the Mercers have made landfall in Massachusetts. So the Mercers, uh, for those of you unfamiliar, it's Robert and his daughter Rebecca Mercer, um, very wealthy Republican donors. They've given a lot of money to uh, Steve Bannon. They've funded some very controversial candidates at, at all levels and I think have shown every indication that they're going to continue to do that. They are the ones that funded the super PAC that ran the ad we heard in the first segment, the one against Elizabeth Warren. Um, and it sounds like they may be playing more significantly in Massachusetts in 2018. Absolutely. Uh, as as um, Catherine mentioned earlier, I think that was a perfect, perfect example of this death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, this type of advertising, this type of, you know, effort um, by outside sources to, you know, discredit Senator Elizabeth Warren, whether it's in her reelection campaign or, you know, as she looks toward 2020, they have identified uh, ways in which they can they can start to, you know, diminish her standing among the voters in Massachusetts. Yeah, I think that's the theory. I mean, I think there's still a very open question as to whether or not it'll work. You know, I mean, this is this radio spot we've heard is one of two that they've run in Massachusetts recently. Um, but, you know, Elizabeth Warren's poll numbers so far have been incredibly stable. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, you know, so the, I suppose the questions are, will they get behind a specific candidate? Will they stay in Massachusetts if it doesn't appear that any of the candidates are particularly competitive? You know, what is their long term goal in Massachusetts and can they be effective at it? Absolutely. And and our, our conversation on this stems from a story by Annie Linsky uh, of the Boston Globe, which ran earlier this week. Um, but essentially the the question of what happens next now that the mercers have made landfall in massachusetts like you said steve um and like we've talked about before you know will they back a candidate or will they simply amplify an anti-warren message um they have gobs of money so to what extent and to what value would that be for a candidate like jeff deal or like shiva ayudari or you know anyone else um when you're up against the Elizabeth Warren fundraising behemoth, um, I think any 
you know, boatload of money that you can possibly get counts. And um, I'm I'm very curious to see how this all plays out. Will this just be, you know, Massachusetts first advertisements that are run, you know, during Red Sox games and things like that? Um, Or will they back individual candidates themselves? Right. And I think then the strategic question for those candidates is, do they even want the money? You know, the specific source of the money, I think, is something which which could become an issue. You know, the Mercers are not unknown. They or their their causes are not unknown. You know, Steve Bannon certainly is very widely known and would be a very effective um, message for Elizabeth Warren herself to say that this is where all this money is that that's um, that's being used to target me. So looking at the looking at two specific candidates, the two you mentioned, Shiva Ayodhara and uh, Jeff Deal. Those are the two I think that would be most likely to be interested in the money, just because of their more um, their stronger ideological alignment with the causes that the Mercers tend to push. So John Kingston, John Kingston, and Beth Lindstrom seem less likely to to benefit from that kind of money, just because it would it seems like it would contrast with their brand. And it, but but going back to what Catherine said before, you know, even if you know, even if John Kingston and Beth Lindstrom, you know, stay completely separate, but the Mercer money still kind of exists in this like other part. The Mercers could, in theory, kind of do a little bit of the dirty work for the campaign themselves. You know, they can say that, you know, oh, we had nothing to do with that advertisement. We're not associated with the Mercers in any way, shape or form. And the Mercers can still advertise here. You know, it's no skin off their back. It's, you know, they they have such vast resources that they can still throw a couple ads in in Massachusetts and in the media market that you know they'd be able to you know do that pretty easily. So it's sort of the classic strategy where the the outside money, the super PACs uh, and all the all the incarnations before super PACs, they're the ones that say the things that the candidate can't say, the things the candidate doesn't want to say. They run all the negative ads whereas the the candidates themselves can say positive and run, run the kinds of positive ads we heard at the beginning. Exactly. So so then comes the next step and the next question of, you know, what does this look like both in terms of, you know, Republican GOP based advertising in the subsequent campaign? And also, you know, could we expect Democratic outside funding? You know, are would this be something where all of a sudden you know, Democrats see this as a need to invest outside money as well. I, I'm kind of skeptical of that simply because of the size of Senator Warren's war chest. Um, and Democrats, if they're focused on, you know, retaking the House in 2018, uh, you know, running. They've got no, a lot to do. Yeah, they, yeah, they've got a lot to do. And it I, I don't know that it makes sense financially for them to to spend here. But, you know, for, for Republicans, it's Yes, 2018 obviously is very important, but a lot of outside sources and, you know, folks that I've even talked to have said that, you know, Republicans and um, conservative operatives are looking at 2020 and how can they diminish Elizabeth Warren's standing ahead of that presidential cycle? That is the question, and that's the question nationwide too. You know, Elizabeth Warren is is sort of a convenient uh, image that Republicans can use for the Democratic Party because she represents a lot of what is totally against what your sort of average Republican voter thinks. So, in addition to wanting to uh, diminish her chances in 2020, I think there's also some aspect of trying to elevate her, uh, just elevate attention towards her, and to 
use the image that they're creating of her as the as sort of the boogeyman, so to speak, of what Democrats are and what they want what they want to do. And it's message testing. You can figure out what works to to run against Elizabeth Warren in a in a smaller microcosm in a smaller market like Massachusetts, and then you you blow that up nationwide. Um, but let's move on a little bit to uh, Senator Warren's actual poll numbers as well as Governor Baker's actual poll numbers. Uh, and Steve, it's your favorite topic. Polls. I, I love the polls. Polls, polls, polls. <laughs> <laughs> that was the alternate name of our podcast, by the way. Um, Warren talked me out of it. <laughs> what can I say? We had to stick to a horse race metaphor, Steve. Stick to the brand. We did. We did. Yes. Exactly. Um, there was another poll uh, released this, this past week from Morning Consult. This, we've talked a bit about Morning Consult polls in the past. They do polls for Politico. Uh, Charlie Baker and Elizabeth Warren were both in this poll. The poll ranked the popularity and job approval of, of all 50 governors and all 100, 100 senators. Charlie Baker is where he has been, which is the most popular governor in America. So 69% say they approve of the job he's doing. 17% of voters in Massachusetts say they disapprove. Um, that's been very stable. The one I think that gets a little bit less attention is the fact that Elizabeth Warren's numbers have been pretty rock solid, actually, since she was elected. So they're often compared to Charlie Baker's in the sense that she's less popular than Charlie Baker. But comparing her to herself, her numbers have her numbers in this poll, which were 54 percent approved, 35 percent disapproved. That's very similar to where she has been. So despite all of this national attention, all of these different ads that have been run against her, all the different sort of, you know, national media and right wing media that uh, focus that she's drawn, she's about where she has been. And that's, I think, what doesn't necessarily get focused on as much as Baker's numbers. Um, so we spend a lot of time talking about her challengers, but I think it's important sometimes to just step back and realize that um, she is actually quite popular. And if someone does manage to diminish her numbers, that will be a new thing. Absolutely. That's, that's a really good way to look at it, too, because if, you know, Elizabeth Warren's status and stature nationally has really risen. I mean, it is really amazing that, you know, she's she's held as steady as she has. And um, I'm, I'm curious to see if at what point that that support moves. I think it also speaks to, um, you know, we've talked about this before, about the, the depth of Senator Warren's support, about how, you know, so many of her supporters are ones and twos. You know, they're, they're diehard. Yeah, um, and, I, and I think that that you see that in the immovability of those poll numbers. Yeah, she has very strong supporters. She has very committed opponents on the other side. Um, but even despite all the national noise and the wind, the sort of gale force winds that seem to, you know, blow about her all the time, her numbers persist. Exactly. Let's move on to an election that is actually happening sooner rather than next year. Uh, next week's elections, this is actually our last podcast before Election Day. Uh, so our last segment, the Something to Watch segment, is going to be about what Steve and I are watching. Which is not the Boston mayoral election, probably. No, not for me. Yeah. So the race that I'm going to be watching is a special election for the, for the state legislature, which is taking place in the 3rd Essex District which is located up in Haverhill. So basically straight north of Boston, up along the New Hampshire border. This seat is being vacated by Brian Dempsey, um, who was for a long time. House Ways and Means chair, very powerful. Seemed to be speaker-in-waiting. Yeah, he. I mean, he was in the legislature since 1992, yeah. I believe. Speaker always in waiting, as it turned out. Um, eventually gave up and is now in the private sector. Um, so this, the reason that I'm focusing on this one is this is another one of the races, Lauren, that you mentioned a couple weeks ago that appears to be one that the Mass GOP is focusing on. Um, so here we've got some more candidate-specific factors that make 
um, that make the Republicans think that they can potentially be competitive. Uh, both sides actually view this as a competitive election. So the Democrats aren't just taking it for granted and ignoring it. Why is it so close? What about it you know, makes them both sides so interested in it? Yeah, the Democrats have gone big on uh, Andy Vargas, who's the Democratic candidate, or Sean Tuohy's the Republican. He's gotten a lot of big name donors, uh, Dan Coe, Mayor Rivera of Lawrence, Sen- Senator uh, Chang Diaz, and so forth, a lot of Boston money. Um, so, you know, they're, they've put a lot of chips in the table. Uh, the, the mass GOP sees this as a race that they can potentially win, and um, their polling suggests that it's within the margin of error. So uh, Ooh. definitely one to watch. Ooh, inside polling insight. Excellent. Uh, as for me, uh, I actually am looking in the city of Boston, but not at the Boston mayoral race. I'm looking at the smaller race, uh, the District 1 Boston City Council race between uh Lydia Edwards, uh, who is a new person, she's not from East Boston, she's not from the district, which honestly I think says a lot about kind of new Boston, old Boston, so she's, she represents new Boston. And then you have Stephen Pasacantilli, a, you know, someone whose family has been around the North End for a long time, who lives in the North End. Uh, and and this is really shaping up to be a a race of of old Boston versus new Boston. Uh, in in the prelim, uh, Lydia Edwards ended up uh, almost uh, getting as many votes as Stephen Pascantilli, who was the uh, top vote getter. I think it was some seventy five votes separated the two. Uh, we're seeing a boatload of money come in here. Both candidates are, are raising a bunch of money. Stephen Pascantilli has has raised over six figures. Uh, Lydia Edwards is is close. I think she has. Uh, has raised something like eighty thousand uh, dollars, which which is a lot for a district race itself. There's also outside spending. Uh, again, this is this is a lot of money. It's it's it was fifteen thousand dollars from uh, organized labor, uh, which was dropped just around Halloween uh, in support of Lydia Edwards. Again, this is a small district based city council election this is we're literally talking about targeting streets within neighborhoods it's, and this is one of this for those unfamiliar with the first district i mean this is a very diverse area where you're you know street by street you have this very sort of intricate web, sort of social fabric with one language on one street one language on another street this is not something where it's just like your voters are sort of all in one clump there's right, a lot right. of little pieces it's it's not homogenous in any way shape or form you know you have the super italian north end you have a extremely diverse east boston this is also something where you have mayor marty walsh who hasn't endorsed in the race uh stephen pasacantilli was you know has been a longtime marty walsh loyalist but uh marty walsh's city hall actually hired lydia edwards after she uh performed really well in a special state senate election earlier this or recently i can't remember if it was this year or last year because time flies when you're having fun (laughs) elections all the time we have a special elections based economy here in massachusetts exactly and we take advantage of that we do um but so Mayor Walsh's involvement has has been this big question mark. There was a mailer that went out in both Spanish and I believe it was Chinese of the mayor and Stephen Pascantilli basically saying, I am with Stephen. Uh, that is, is, you know, pretty surprising and eyebrow raising. I mean, this is this is total, total inside baseball. But, you know, that's something that, you know, we all pay attention to. Here, surprising so. because the mayor actually hasn't made a formal endorsement, even though the mailer suggests that he did. Exactly. Nor nor is he expected to make a formal endorsement either. Um, so that's that's a little bit of insight on why I will be following a district city council race very closely on on election night. 
All right, sounds good. And a quick plug uh, before we wrap up with our trivia, uh, Lauren and I will be at on WBUR on election night. So um, recapping all the good hashtag Matt Polly horse racery. Yes. Which is the word that Lauren put on my piece of paper here. It's a it's a great phrase. Uh, but nonetheless, catch our horse racery and other things. Uh, it'll be on 90.9 FM on your radio dial. Uh, those of you still have radio dials, you can also stream it online for those uh, technologically inclined. Yeah, no, no one has radio dials anymore. Hey, I do on my, I'm in my car. Okay. Anyway, now to <laughs> answer, moving along. And now to answer last week's trivia question: What was the last year a challenger unseated in an incumbent mayor in Boston? The answer is 1949, when John Hines beat Wiley and occasionally imprisoned James Michael Carley. And now to this week's question. So this week brought the news that former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney is considering a run for Senate in Utah. Former Senator Scott Brown uh, is another example of a Mass GOP politician who moved from Massachusetts to New Hampshire to run for Senate. And uh, Bill Weld ran for governor of New York after serving as Massachusetts governor. We just export Mass GOP politicians left and right all over You're the country. You're welcome. Um, it's not a Massachusetts politician, but who was the only person to ever serve as governor of two states? Ooh, That's good the question, question for this week. All right. Well, that does it for us this week. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Lauren Dzenski of Politico, Massachusetts. Our producer and finder of obscure trivia is Hannah Shinatri. Find us online at iTunes, SoundCloud, and tune in. And thank you all for listening.